Welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. Thank you for joining us. Here on Living the Questions, we wrestle. We wrestle with life's dilemmas, we wrestle with current events, and we wrestle with what it means to live lives of integrity. We hope that you find some community, some comfort, and some hope in this time together. To learn more about our congregation, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. Welcome, everyone, to the second edition of our podcast for the month of March. Normally, this is the point in the podcast where I introduce a juicy question um, that we're wrestling with and that we're going to dive into. I feel like those are the two verbs I usually use. But this time, instead of a fancy, juicy question, we're just going to talk about money. We're going to talk about money. And uh, I thought about writing a question about it. Um, But I think at its core, right, the question is really just sort of like money. Why are we so afraid of it? Why does it have such power over us? And why do we seem to act out of pocket, to say the least, whenever it comes up? What makes us so anxious about it? So uh, this week, we're talking about money. To start us off, we're going to talk about some current events as they relate to money. Um, and there's right, money is happening all the time all around us. But here in Wyoming, uh, the big conversation that we're having about money is about the really significant state budget shortfalls that we are having. Um, and I will not pretend that I am uh, an expert in how exactly Wyoming has gotten to this point. But I think I, I feel safe saying that um, Wyoming has a state funding structure that is extremely dependent on taxes from oil and gas extraction and coal extraction, and that there are some you know rainy day funds and things like that that were set up to protect the state from a boom and bust cycle, except that we're sort of in what many of us think is kind of a permanent bust around fossil fuels. And even if it's not guaranteed to be a permanent bust, we sort of wish it were a permanent bust um, in terms of climate change. But anyhow, so the state of Wyoming is facing these really historic budget shortfalls. And the conversations around like what to cut and how to cut and, um, you know, what, like what's going to happen, have really, really centered in the public discourse on cuts and not on new revenue generation, um, though there have been many who have beat the drum of revenue generation. Um, and when they get interviewed for newspaper stories, they just sound very, very long-suffering. Um <laughs> Thinking about former chair of the you know House Revenue Committee, Representative Dan Zwanitzer. Um, so there's 
there's just all of this conversation about like, what are we going to cut? How are we going to cut it? Like we need to cut and especially education, um, right? Like we need to cut education in a way that won't have any impact on students and teachers, right? specifically students. And I think that it's it's just so fascinating to watch um, people, which includes all of us, who should theoretically know better, make the assertion that somehow um, the services we receive just uh, don't cost money, and that we can all we can deliver the same product for less money. We can deliver the same quality of education for less money um, because we're going to cut things that don't impact students, like administrative salaries and things like that, um, as if we've just, like, as if administrators are just twiddling their thumbs most of the time. Um, And there are, you know, also some really significant cuts coming to um, mental health and addiction services in the state that, you know, cuts to state jobs that have already happened. Um, And so... I wonder how it would be different if the public conversation around the budget shortfall centered on what is most important to us. And I wonder if we began from the place of this is what is most important to us, if we would get ourselves out of the repetitive cycle of we've got to cut and we have to cut in ways that no one is going to notice. Because that's just not possible. To get us grounded in our own Unitarian Universalist history and theology as we talk about money, I'm going to talk about um, a piece of our history that I feel like we've addressed before, but now through a new and different lens. So we've talked in the past, I think, about um, what is sometimes called the empowerment controversy or the, um, you know, the black empowerment controversy or the white entitlement controversy, or there's lots of different names for it. But it's functionally, it's the time in Unitarian Universalism's history when there were two kind of schools of thought and groups of people working on different frameworks of integration or anti-racism work or black concerns, depending on how you, you know, want to parse it. And I think that different people who were involved in different groups of this would have used different of those terms to describe what they were doing. So there was um, a, um, you know, there was a group of people who were really focused on um, thinking about Black and white folks working together. And um, their acronym was B-A-W-A or BAWA. And so there were those folks, and they were, you know, you might think of them as sort of like the classical integrationists. And then there was um, another group uh, who was focused on empowering Black Unitarian Universalists to help transform our faith. And they went by the acronym BAC or BAC, and so sometimes you'll hear it referred to as BAC and BAWA, um, or you'll see those acronyms in print. And so these two groups um, had very different sort of philosophical approaches to anti-racism work, right? one being classically integrationist and another being 
not exactly like the Black Panthers, but certainly um, more in line with the philosophy of the Black Power movement. And so these two groups are, you know, sort of both Unitarian Universalist, both part of our communities. And I think what's interesting is that the controversy that stems from these two groups is not just like the UUA or some important person said like yes to this group and no to that group or like yes you no you have to go right like nobody said what you're doing is not unitarian universalist what you're doing is antithetical to our values like we don't think you should be doing what you're doing nobody was like directly saying any of those things but what happened is that one group got fully funded and another group got an amount of funding that was basically like no funding. And so the the controversy does not stem from, you know, like an excommunication. It stems from our institutional willingness to fund certain kinds of anti-racism work and our institutional lack of willingness to fund other kinds of anti-racism work. And I think that... Um, you know, at least from this sort of vantage point in history, the the general-ish consensus is that the UUA wanted to fund anti-racism work that did not make white folks um, quite so uncomfortable. And that they were not interested in funding anti-racism work that made white folks, like, really uncomfortable. And it, and it's, it is obviously far more complex than that, and there are... Um, you know, I know that there are especially black elders in our communities um, who have a different a different take. And the controversy was not about what we said someone could or couldn't do. It was what about what we were and were not willing to fund. And I think that's part of why um, a few years ago it was so important that the UUA board made this really significant multi-million dollar funding commitment to Black Lives of UU and and other um, initiatives. And it, because for me, funding things is about expressing our values. Budgeting is about expressing our values. Giving people money to do th- certain things and not giving other people money to not do those other things, that's an expression of our values. And so when we talk about what we're going to fund in our congregations or how we're going to spend our congregational budget, right, those conversations are not just conversations about like, oh, well, we don't have the money to do that. Sorry. Those conversations are about our values. And I think that... Um, in addition to helping me reframe this sort of budgeting conversation as a conversation that should be about, you know, how are how are we best expressing our values? It also reminds me that history will judge how we've spent our money. You know, with in the fullness of time, people will look back and say, like, either I can't believe they wouldn't fund that. Um, and instead spent their money on X, Y, or Z, or people will look back and say, like, yeah, they spent money in ways that align with our values. And so our history is a history of people trying and often failing, but needing to try again. 
to spend our collective money in ways that align with our values. One of the surest ways I have discovered to get out of organizational duties when you're on a board or a committee or a team um, in any kind of nonprofit or church setting, right? one of the sure, surest fire ways you can get out of doing a bunch of other stuff is by saying that you are willing to ask for money. That you're willing to ask for money. If you are willing to ask for money, People will go out of their way to make sure make, they'll do all the other stuff. They would like, oh, well, I'll get volunteers. I'll gather the materials. I'll set up. I'll take down. As long as you don't make me get a hold of the microphone and ask these people for money. And uh, I certainly uh, benefit from this as somebody who does not mind asking people for money. So maybe don't steal all of my secrets in this way. But I will say that it makes me kind of sad. It makes me sad that people are so afraid to ask for money. Because the truth is that money is a tool. Money is a tool. We live in a society where money exists, right? Where, like, we use money to understand our economics of sharing and exchange. And it's just a reality of the life we currently live. And I am all here for if people want to talk about a society without money or a society beyond money. Uh, That, like, who boy, we will, like, fire up the cupcakes and get talking. But until we live in that world... We live in a world with money, and that means we need to raise it to do the kinds of things that we want to do. And this is not because, um, you know, we want to emulate a capitalist society necessarily, but because we want to do things in this world. We believe that we can make it a better place. We believe that we can make it um, more livable if we are willing and able to make material changes and improvements in people's lives. And one of the things that is required to do that is money. And that money does a lot of different things in our, you know, not just our congregations and churches, but in our nonprofit organizations and in our community organizations um, right? and in our families and in our kind of informal community networks too. Money allows us to do things. It is like a building or electricity or the internet. It lets us do things. And so I have long wondered if our relationship to money could be changed, could be improved, could be transformed, if we were just a little bit more willing to talk about it. After all, we love to talk about sex or I at least love to talk about death, or um, forgiveness, or God, and or atheism, right? We love to talk about all these kind of juicy topics, these complicated things that um, like spark conversation and generate controversy. I've talked about body positivity from the pulpit. I've talked about death from the pulpit. Um, 
But somehow when I talk about money from the pulpit, it's like this weird special thing that gives like people the heebie-jeebies and they don't know what to do about it. And there is, I think in part it's because we carry so much shame. We carry so much shame about money. And we carry shame about not having enough money. We carry shame about having too much money. We carry shame about not having a, you know, not having enough savings. We carry shame about our debt. Um, We carry so much shame around money. And I think part of the, the way that shame has power is because we don't talk about it, because we won't talk about it. Because it it is like the last thing that's left that Unitarian Universalists won't talk about in polite company. So what would it take for you to talk about money? Right, what would it take for you um, on a given Sunday morning or, or any time you're in community with other people, whether they are next to you in the pew or in the Zoom square next to you, like what would it take for you to feel comfortable turning to that person next to you and talking about money? Not talking about like theoretical economics, like I think, you know, there's too much inflation. Not talking about money like that, but talking about money like I struggle with my fill in the blank, right? I struggle with my student debt. I struggle with my credit card. I struggle with um, knowing how to give generously. I struggle with impulse purchasing. Um, I struggle with how, how my wages are not sufficient, right? I struggle with asking for a raise. I struggle with budgeting for health care. Like, what would it take for us to be able to actually talk about those things to one another? You know, so often in our congregations and in other community organizations, we talk about how it's such a drag to raise money. Right? It's such a drag to raise money, like I said at the beginning, and no one wants to do it. Um, and it's this, it's a chore, really. And I think I've long wondered whether our, if we could have some of those earlier conversations, those more intimate conversations, those more personal conversations about money, if we could have those more personal conversations about money, how might that change the way that we talk about money as an organization? You know, if if we could turn to one another and feel comfortable saying, here is the thing that I'm working on dealing with in my own financial life, then like how much deeper and broader and more imaginative could our conversations about here's what we are struggling with financially as a community, as an organization, how much how much more imaginative could those conversations be if we could be vulnerable vulnerable about the reality of our relationships to money. You know, money, I think, is one of those places that Unitarian Universalists will sometimes, we will often assume a sameness of approach and background. Right? We assume, we look around the room and see people who, you know, for all intents and purposes, seem like us, right? We're together because we're like-minded. We're together because we have shared values. Um, and though it is not the case in every community, it's often the case in New You churches, right? Part of our togetherness is that we have a lot of demographic sameness across the body of the congregation. 
And so when we look across that demographic sameness or that sameness of, you know, theological or political persuasion, we, we assume that everyone else shares our values about money, too. But my experience is that that's not true, that we actually have a lot of divergent and beautiful and complicated relationships to money in our congregation. And in lots of community organizations and and churches. I had the really lovely experience of teaching a class um, called the Wisdom Path. Um, And the little S in wisdom is a dollar sign. It's like Kesha's name. Um, And it's, it's often referred to as our whole lives for money. And our whole lives is our lifespan human sexuality curriculum. And so the wisdom path is a curriculum that invites us into conversations about money and how it does or doesn't reflect our values the way we relate to it. And, you know, when I was initially teaching the class, the people in the room were of almost all the same demographic. There was a pretty narrow age span, obviously, myself accepted. You know, folks were in their late 40s to mid-60s. Everybody in the room was white. Everybody in the room was straight, except for me again. Right, so, so there was just this real demographic sameness in the room. But when we talked about people's earliest memories of money, when we talked about people's um, earliest memories of being taught how to give, right, people's earliest memories of charitable giving, when we talked about people's earliest memories of being told not to talk about money, wow, you know, the room just opened up and blossomed into this real diversity of background. Um, People with divergent class upbringings, people with divergent cultural upbringings, people with divergent current class situations. And it was such a moment of revelation for me about how our relationships to money are all very different. And that we do ourselves a disservice as congregations and organizations when we won't talk about it because we fail to understand the diversity in the room. And that what I mean when I say, you know, we have to spend to grow is different than what somebody else means when they say that. And what someone else means when they say, you know, we need to put away for a rainy day. Like that has been, that is shaped by their upbringing. That is shaped by their cultural experience. That's shaped by their class experiences, both in their childhoods and in their adulthoods. And when we don't talk about those things, when we won't engage some level of vulnerability in how we talk about money in our own lives. We miss an opportunity to go deeper in our conversation about it as a, as a community and as a collective. And the thing about when we don't talk about it is that not only do we not get to go deeper, is that we let that shame keep hold of people. 
We let that shame keep hold of our minds and hearts. We let that shame um, keep hold of our spirits. And when we are gripped by shame, it is so hard to act from courage and imagination. When we're gripped by shame, we act from fear and from an idea that um, we need to do things in a certain way so that no one will ever find out about our shame. But what would it take for you to have a conversation about money that didn't get dominated by your own sense of shame? And then what might be possible for you and for us and for our community if we could break free from our shame and from our fear? I think we don't yet know what would be possible because we haven't yet figured out quite how to do it. But I know that it is possible. May it be so. Amen. Thank you for listening. Your presence matters to us. Whether you are here in Cheyenne or across the globe, We are grateful that you would spend this time with us. If you'd like to connect more with our community, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. I'm the Reverend Hannah Roberts Vilnave, and on behalf of a grateful community, thank you. We'll see you soon.